Hello, my name is Rosemary Milsom and I'm the director of the Newcastle Writers' Festival. The Priest and the Writer was recorded in 2017. Please enjoy Ailsa Piper and Tony Doherty discussing their unexpected friendship with Caroline Baum. Um, I'm particularly pleased to finish this very worldly gathering on a more spiritual plane. I first met Ailsa Piper at the Byron Bay Writers' Festival on a panel called It's Not Easy Being Good, which was a bit of a misnomer because she finds it incredibly easy. Ailsa is an actor turned writer and director. After a long stint on Neighbours, where, incidentally, the Miles Franklin winner Sophie Laguna played her sister, I love that kind of trivia, Um, Elsa wrote a memoir called Sinning Across Spain in which she documented a pilgrimage of some 1,300 kilometers that was both physical and spiritual. Elsa is a woman who combines motion with emotion. She is not someone who sits still for very long, and yet she is a contemplator. Now, I met Tony Doherty, Monsignor Tony Doherty, through Elsa. He was looking for a place to rent for a spiritual retreat. And he rang me up and he said, how would you feel about renting your house to a priest? As if he was saying, how would you feel about renting your house to a criminal? That's really almost the way you put it. It was really a, a, very, a very strange and very memorable kind of a question that you put to me, Tony. Um, Anyway, I was more than happy to rent my house out to you for a little bit of a spiritual retreat for you to play golf and have a bit of a swim because I live on a beautiful stretch of coast on the New South Wales South Coast. Um, And when Tony came down to sort of audition as my tenant, which is really what it was like, I sort of felt like I was meeting Peter Ustinov in a dog collar. He was the most amazing raconteur, and I just could not resist offering him the house. I, I felt that it was, in fact, um, an honour to rent the house to him. And but I he did s- pay, I hope. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's get that clear. <laughs> but I have to say that in the, um, in the time that I have got to know Tony since he was my tenant, um, I have come to really cherish my friendship with him and I can't explain it quite but I have to say that when I'm with Tony I feel safe and that's an extraordinary thing to feel in somebody's company. Um, What's so special about their book The Attachment is that it's a dialogue that is both playful and profound and I hope that this afternoon we're going to be able to be both playful and profound with you. So, first of all, please join me in welcoming Elsa and Tony. Um, I want to start by asking you both about the place of friendship in your lives before this book of letters between you came about. And I'm particularly interested in the role of friendship in your life, um, Tony, because I think of you as very sociable, very gregarious, very much a people person. But I get the impression from a conversation that I had with Elsa that in the role of a priest, friendship may not have been um, considered to be 
an appropriate or an important part of the role of being a priest. Could you just say something about friendship in your life before Elsa came along? <laughs> yes, thank you. Thanks for that introduction too. That was lovely. That was worth the, uh, worth the coming here this afternoon. <laughs> friendship, friendship, yes. It's, um, oh, it's a central part of my life. Um, I have a number of friends and they are, they are really, they have shaped me. They have uh, given me a sense, a better sense of who I am to myself. Uh, and it's a very, a very significant part of, of uh, my, uh, my human journey. It's in contrast to, might I say, something that happened in the seminary. Now, a seminary is, I'm sure all of you know, is a place of formation of priests. I was there for eight years, long time, and the discipline and formation was quite intense. But one piece of advice that was given to us early was something that I railed against, and still rail against, really. And the advice was, form your friends among priests as though friendship was something that you could control so easily. I think part of the advice was a rather benighted sort of sense of, well, be careful of real people. <laughs> You'll lose track of what you're doing. Be particularly careful of women uh, and friendships with women um, because celibacy is tricky, difficult, and uh, this is a, an area which is even more shark-filled in its danger. So that was the advice that was given to me, I can remember, in the early, in the mid-1950s when it went to the seminary. It seemed, I was angry when I heard it. At that stage, I was probably 22, 23, 24, something, in which I had a group of friends who were very, very important to me. And I heard this advice of saying, just abandon them and get into mm. this new tribe. So it's a long answer to your question, Caroline, but uh, it goes to the very heart of, I think uh, I understand myself better in relationship, as a, in, as in more and more as I invest in friendship. And I love the fact that you chose to disregard that advice. Good for you. I um, didn't sort of disregard it. I just thought, was wrong. I mean, I know that's disregard, but it was so fundamentally wrong. Yes, yes. Elsa, what about um, friendship in your life? Friendship, I think, comes to you very easily. I think you make friends quickly and very intensely. And this morning, we were, in fact, talking about how both of you say that you fall in love very quickly, and I was sort of, not as a point of correction, but I was saying, I don't think you necessarily fall in love, but you have very quick infatuations and kind of crushes on people. And, and in a way, we may explore that a little bit more later on in the conversation, but just your take on friendship. And, and, and in your answer, if you wouldn't mind also perhaps saying something about how, when you became friends with Tony, what your friends said to you about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I do fall, I fall for people on trains, you know, I mean, I actually, the, in fact, I came across a thing in the book that I'd forgotten about the other day, which is a description of, you know, how I fall in love with the, the, 
the gammy, the gammy legged boy and I fall in love with the person selling flowers and occasionally, not always, but I have these moments and they sometimes last for, you know, an hour or so where the world looks to me like a series of, if you will forgive the misuse of the word, sort of lovers, you know, it's like I have that crush thing on, and I think it's having been an actor that I go, or maybe it was why I was an actor, I go very quickly to trying to be inside the skin of another person. And it always feels incredibly moving to me. Sometimes when I'm stopped at traffic lights and I watch people walking across the road, I have this weird sort of feeling of one person will make me just burst with happiness and the next one will make me cry. Now I know that sounds barking mad and it doesn't happen all the time, but it is a sort of a sense of real wonder at people. Now that's the crush the kind of crush moment. Mm. But then how does it become friendship? Well, that's, you know, that is the rubbing up against people and kind of getting gnarly that um, Tony said once in a conversation that we go through three stages of friendship. Enchantment, which I understand immediately. I get enchantment like that. And then disenchantment, and I resisted that. But in fact, disenchantment, as any of you will know, if you've been married a long time, or you have children, or you have parents, or you just have long-standing friends, you have to have disenchantment. And then mature consolidation. Well, I'm lucky in that I'm not afraid of disenchantment. Um, I had a mum who was sensational at kind of making us have opinions and making us have conversations and arguments with each other. So that I understood that friction wasn't a bad thing. Mm. And so... I actually have this enormous um, circle of friends. And the other thing I suppose I think about friendship is that it requires turning up. You know, it's not something that you get granted. You get granted the crush, but friendship requires turning up, you know, to the email, to the hard moments, to the, you know, the, the moments that are about stopping when you don't want to stop. And I have a lot of people who have done that for me in my life and an enormous number really. But they were very surprised when I stopped to engage in conversation with Tony. Everyone said, what are you doing in conversation with that old priest? Um, <laughs> what, what's anyone laughing about that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it was interesting. I mean, a mutual friend of ours, I remember when I was working at one point on writing with Tony... Um, I said, oh, it would be really nice to have a meal with a couple of friends. Um, could I invite them? Because Tony had kindly offered me a workspace at the presbytery, like a, an office space. And I was living down the hill, but there was no kitchen. And I said, do you think I could make a meal at the end of the day and invite them? Because I'd got used to the idea that I was working in this presbytery. When I first went there, it was like I'd never been in a presbytery in my life. Well, my friends arrived, and one of them, who's a very close friend of ours, had had a lot of time in and out of presbyteries as a child, but had rejected Catholicism. She walked in, it was like... And she just couldn't relax for dinner the whole time. So there was a lot of, um, why are you in conversation mm. with a priest? And indeed, may I say, Tony said to me repeatedly, in these times that we're living in, to be in a friendship with a priest is like being in a friendship with a used car dealer or a drug addict. Well, that's what um, I mean about the, the conversation we had about would you rent your house to me? It was like, would you mm. rent your house to a drug dealer? Absolutely. Mm. You say, Elsa, though, that Tony worked at the friendship and still does. What do you mean by that? Well, in the enchantment stage, which was when Tony first wrote to me, so he wrote to me about my previous book and I wrote back, and it was sort of zingy, zingy, zingy stuff. But then... 
you know, I'm not someone who wants to skate on the surface and neither is Tony. And so the letters did become much more firstly disclosive about ourselves, but then, you know, I went him about feminism, I went him about all sorts of things, I went him about the church. Um, and still do. And I still do. Quite um, right too. <laughs> but, you know, in his beautiful defence, Tony has never, in my experience, resiled from anything that I've thrown at him. I hope I haven't resiled when he's thrown stuff back at me because, mm. you know, it's, I suppose I make Tony look at certain aspects of the world. What I would say is Tony makes me look at aspects of myself. And I don't always find them entirely as generous as I'd like to. For instance, early on, I carried sins across Spain. That was the premise of my previous book. I meditated on sins that people had given me. Early on, very early on, Tony asked me uh, something about what I would do about a pedophile priest. And I said, don't think I could carry that one. My heart's way closed against that. And Tony's response was quite simple. It was actually, um, would you have me write to the person in prison who asks for help and say I'm not going to help him? And that threw me for a terrible loop. I still wrestle with that all the time. It's like, is my capacity for friendship and compassion only limited to the pretty things? It's like saying, well, I'll really work to preserve this pretty koala, but I don't like this lizard so they can die off. Mm. You know that thing that we do? And I think, it, I don't know the answer, but Tony's made me look at my gnarly, ugly bits, um, <laughs> of which there are rather too many. <laughs> Well, we may come back to those. Tony, I, 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 or not, as the case may be. Um, <laughs> no, let's not. Tony, um, as Elsa touched on there, this friendship began with basically a fan letter. Uh, and I'm just wondering whether you were in the habit of writing fan letters, you are an enthusiast, do you believe that when something pleases you, you should write a letter of appreciation? Can you just tell us a little bit about the beginning? Because you do also have a mutual friend in common. So just take us through that business of that opening salvo. Hmm. Do I write fan letters? Uh, not really, but I have heroes. I have heroes that really sort of excite me and uh, a lot of people I'd like to write to that I don't, perhaps, anyway. But uh, I don't write letters like that, but uh, I have on, a, on occasion. And on this occasion, um, uh, the book, I need to explain, was given to me, the book Cine Across Spain, written by an unknown author in Melbourne, uh, was sent to me the day before the Easter celebrations or a few years ago, on Thursday night, Holy Thursday night. Now, I was in a parish. This week, in fact. It's this yeah, week. Yeah, that's right. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And the, uh, Five years ago. And so those three or four days in a parish, you know, Catholic parish, over Easter, uh, sort of there's lots of things happening and uh, I'm fairly busy. And the, the book arrived on Thursday night from a mutual friend of ours, Sandy Gore, that, that wonderful actor. <laughs> and uh, I looked at the title and said, oh, well, I'll get to that in about September, October or <laughs> sometime. Uh, but I made the mistake of opening the cover and the story drew me in. Stories I find magnetic. Mm. Um, we were talking about this this morning. And uh, I found I, I read the book over the Easter holidays and finished it at about 1.30 on Easter Monday night. So it kept drawing me back. 
Um, so it was a more than normally powerful piece of writing. It concerned two matters. One was the Camino de Santiago, the, in case you don't know, it's the, it's the journey in Spain that both Ailsa and I, quite separately and at different times, had walked. So that interested me. But also it, it had this intriguing idea, mad idea, I thought at the time, of carrying somebody else's sins. Mm. An old medieval practice that this funny researcher had sort of found somewhere. And, uh, um, and I thought, oh, how interesting. So eventually I wrote to her, more or less wanting to say that I like the book. Bit unusual, but I felt that, had, had a moment, was just, there was nothing very planned about it, it was quite spontaneous. But then I couched it in my normal, ironic, sarcastic way as, how are you getting into this game of sin and, and uh, carrying sins? And uh, this is my game, and you're getting money for it. <laughs> so the, the first letter had, I think, a little bit of ironic sarcasm about it. But fundamentally it was, I liked the story. Mm. The story caught me. Am I answering the question? Yes, you are. Yeah, yeah. You are. And in fact, I thought maybe now would be a good time for us to go to a reading, because one of the things that is so charming about this book is the rhythm, the dialogue of letter to letter, the kind of call and response and the sort of repartee. So in order to give you a flavour of that, perhaps you might like to um, uh, read us a little bit. Um. So Tony's just written to me a story about his big brother, beautiful story about how he learned to swim, because Tony's a swimmer and I'm a walker. Dear Tony, your story made me ponder how we are formed in childhood, and I offer this anecdote by way of a pointer to my infatuation with walking. My maternal grandmother, known as Ning, was a mixture of misty Irish softness from her parents and Aussie bush resilience from her surroundings. She was also something of a tracker. Out on the red earth, she could decipher meanings in a squiggle, the message in a cracked twig. As an illustration of this, my mother, writing an account of my life for me just before she died, told of one occasion when, as a three-year-old, I escaped the watchful eyes of all my minders and set off on a grand safari with Mitzi, the fox terrier. Noticing my absence, a panic-stricken group began to search but it was Ning who picked up the tracks of the adventurers and caught up with us. Mitzi was in front while I followed, collecting everlasting daisies. My mother reported that the hapless Mitzi got a serious whacking and was left to follow the jeep home, while I was fussed over in the front seat and checked from top to toe for bites, stings or structural damage, cosseted, adored. My inheritance from Ning and Mum was the confidence to walk the world expecting only flowers and wonder, safe in the knowledge that even if lost, I will always be found. I hadn't considered it till your story, so thank you, compañero. Gracias. In Spanish it means grace, you know. Elsa. Elsa, now here is a connection you might not have expecting, not have been expecting. The Gospels tell us that Jesus walked everywhere. There's a reason for this. When one walks, one can also talk. One can stop 
and have time for others. One can eat and touch people and interact with them. Walking allows us a particular life pace. It makes possible a way of understanding and looking with open eyes. It's about having a capacity to make visible what is invisible, of paying attention to inconvenient suffering, of taking responsibility for what is broken in our world, whether it is wounded people or a damaged environment. You know this, of course, but I wonder if you ever consider that that other walker as you step out into the world. Tony. Dear Tony, don't wish to sound grand, but I've been told often of a tradition of walking mysticism. Holy men and women who take to the road, prophets, saints, and other teachers. Hadn't considered it before, but Jesus is often on the road, isn't he? Maybe that's why I think of the road as a sacred place. Buen Camino from the wandering tyke with her arms full of everlastings, Ailsa. <laughs> that, I think, gives you absolutely the sort of um, cadence of this beautiful conversation. And I wanted to ask you about how that actually worked or whether that's been um, sort of shaped in the creation of the book from the raw material of your letters. So did you always answer each other promptly? Because one of the things that emails do is they seem to suggest a kind of urgency where the moment you get one, you think, oh, my God, I must reply to that, in a way that letters sort of suggest a more leisurely time of consideration for reply. So, Tony, can you just talk a little bit about how speedily or not you responded and how you've created this rhythm in the, in the book? You can, you can maybe share that particular answer. But first of all, Tony, about... Well, my colleague is enormously urgent. <laughs> as soon as I take my finger off the keys, there seems to be a reply. I, on the other hand, am a celebrated procrastinator. <laughs> And uh, I, I think it's not just our correspondence, but I think it's the nature of email, perhaps the nature of different generations. Mm. This woman is, I don't know, two or three generations younger than I am, <laughs> who has been schooled in a level of, of communication that I haven't. I mean, I use the internet and I use... So I have no feeling of compulsion to answer an email immediately. In fact, I don't want to. Mm. I want to give it a little more space. I want to get on with the living or something. So to answer your question, we do write and think and live, dare I say it, at different paces. Uh -huh. Now, is that a problem? I don't know. But in fairness, the first probably two months of our correspondence was a flurry. I mean, it really... And thankfully, it was broken because Tony had to go away to Africa. So there was a period where it had to stop and settle. But there was a kind of... Because it's the enchantment stage. And in the enchantment stage, it was like, who are you? Who is this person? I want to ask you this. Someone commented about the number of questions we ask of each other, you know, that, that we're always ending a, a letter with a question. And there was that. But, but the other thing, I suppose, about it is... I am, an in, I am an obsessive correspondent, and you I don't... Are. <laughs> you are. Yes, you are. You are. You are. 
<laughs> I grew up in the outback of Western Australia, so, you know, we used to wait for the mail truck, the food truck, I mean, everything, you know, so letters were a big thing. So I still write a lot of snail mail, and one of the reflections in the book is about the nature of different sort of correspondence, and at one point I had to write Tony a letter letter because I actually felt that everything was going fast, and I wanted the thing of my thoughts spreading onto the page in that lovely way they do. So, you know, it's a kind of a really interesting conversation even to have in an ongoing way about the way in which we communicate, you know, and the text is like, for me, the bottom of the barrel, but it's only for the things that are expedient. And mm. then you come up to email, but then the really elevated conversation is the letter. <laughs> but, I mean, there's also another dimension to this that's sort of intriguing because, you know, letters are, by definition, you think, private. Mm. And now you've taken your friendship out into the world through these letters, yes. and, and that seems to change things so that it turns a private aspect of your relationship into basically what's happening here, which is a performance. And I'm just wondering, particularly you as an actor, director, as well as writer, whether you can talk about that conversion of the raw material of this private exchange into this thing that you're now sharing with the world and, and readers? Well, there was a moment, and we can never quite agree on when it was and how it <laughs> happened, that we thought, let's try and make it into a book. That began a very extended and quite tortuous process because we didn't actually start by thinking, oh, the letters are going to be it. I mean, that, was, that really didn't occur to us. So we thought we'd use the letters as a little springboard and we began writing playlets, so like trying to um, give you a sense of our conversation by writing two-hander plays that were sort of little, you know, 10-page conversations. Tortuous, tortuous. Tortuous it was, yeah. Then it was like, well, you write an essay on, you know, some aspect of spirituality. That would be good. That would go well there. And I'll write something about creativity. Anyway, we did this and we worked on it for about two years. And then there was a... Uh, well, in May 2014, my husband died very suddenly. Uh, it was a brain hemorrhage and it was a schism in my life where everything stopped. And um, Tony was fantastic through that time, but obviously the work on the book just was like, who cares? Uh, and when I came back to it in 2015, I was given three weeks at Bundanon, that beautiful artist residence of Arthur Boyd's, and I was working on another project, and that went terribly, because everything I wrote was about death and dying, and there was just, it was just horrible. And so I picked this up, and I read it, and every single thing I read, I just went, mm, that's so horrible, because it struck me that we'd been trying to be people we weren't. We'd been trying to be these clever, terribly sort of portentous, you know, pretentious twats, really. Um, and it just felt awful, so I cut out 30,000 words and sent it to Tony, and sort of what was left were the letters. I said, what do you there think? There were 30,000 of my words, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> the good words. <laughs> and at that point, we sort of tidied, I suppose, some of the letters that felt, um, what shall I say, not particularly of interest to where we thought we'd stop it. There is a reason for where we stop the book, and that's very much related to the cover. Um, but then we inserted letters to the reader um, and... Partly, you know, when we looked back at it, a lot of what we'd written to each other about right from the beginning was about grief and death and dying, and so it seemed that that was where we'd go to. We did take out the cat videos, you know, when you'd send each other a link to the cat video. We took those out. Um, but How essentially... Was the cat videos? The cat videos. You know that one about the cat tapping the 
The anyway, keyboard, yes. The keyboard, yes. Anyway, there was a lot of, you know, look at this that went on as you do on email and we didn't think anyone else would be interested in those. But essentially the letters are the letters. Some were moved forward so that they could be included. Mm. But in fact, the letters, I would say to you in being really honest that I took out a lot of my exclamation marks. With Carmel Bird sitting in the front row, I feel I need to say my overuse of the exclamation mark is a really ugly thing. Now, I don't want you to get the impression that these letters, just because of this great affection and regard that you, you see here, are cosy. Um, there, there are some really beautifully, um, I have to say, at the beginning of the correspondence, everything is quite polite between these two, but you get quite quickly to a sort of nitty-gritty, and there is a very um, powerful exchange between Elsa and Tony where you can sense that Tony is very, very hurt by a reference that Elsa makes, not unkindly, but, but in, in a fairly sort of heated moment to the church as a sort of bullying father. And Tony, I was just wondering whether you could talk a little bit about how you reacted to that image of the church from Elsa, uh, and about how the relationship through the letters became more robust so that when it came to the Royal Commission, you could um, tackle it, both of you, absolutely head on. Uh, you give us your profound sadness, grief, dismay, anger. Can, can you talk a little bit about that first image of the church that Elsa lobbed at you, that feeling of hurt, and take it from there? This is going to be a little bit oblique to your question, but I hope I'm going to, to answer it. I see my life caught between contradictions. There are real contradictions in my life. For example, my uh, great-grandparents arrived out here as boat people in 1861 from Donegal in Ireland. Uh, they had no money. They came out in a leaky boat. They were sponsored and they arrived here uh, as refugees. That's part of my story. I'm a citizen of a country now who rejects refugees. That to me is a, what I would call a contradiction. A contradiction from my own story to that I'm a citizen of a country. Another contradiction might be um, that my parents lived a quite simple life. They, they really had few financial resources, but uh, um, dad, uh, dad and mum didn't own their own home, didn't have a car, um, sent us to schools by dint of their, their um, uh, application for, for sort of bursaries and scholarships. But uh, they were, they lived for, I now live a most affluent life. I don't mean I've got stocks and shares, and I don't mean I've got a huge amount of money, but I've got education, I've got health, I've got uh, a profession I'm proud of, uh, and I live, you might say, in the top four or five percent of the planet. I'm a very affluent, rich individual. Now, in a sense, there's, there's contradictions there. Uh, I'm trying to understand and bring the gospel to people, and yet I'm living in this very specialised and uh, an elite situation. Now, one of the key contradictions in my life, which I feel very sensitive to and uh, 
particularly here in Newcastle, I guess, is that I, for 54 years, I've lived, uh, lived a very satisfying life, very satisfying as a, um, in my, my ministry of, Minister of Religion. But now I'm living with the devastating news that has reached every one of us of the history of sexual abuse among my colleagues. That rips me up, that, that contradiction, that, that, that stretching is a very sensitive area of my life. Mm -hmm. I um, feel greatly for the church and the tradition and, and, uh, and yet we're living um, a life of disgrace at the moment. Now, where do I fit with that? Um, might I say in parenthesis that even coming here and standing on a, on a uh, platform anywhere, but in Newcastle particularly, as a Roman Catholic priest, I feel the contradiction in that, that whole thing. You know, uh, I thought long and hard about whether to do this. To go to the book and the letters, a lot of those undercurrents were swirling through my mind. Mm. And Ailsa was naturally moved, as I'm sure you all are, at the extraordinary contradiction in this Catholic Church and uh, wrote about it in ways that, that I was a bit like a live grenade, I suppose. You know, these word, every word was, I wanted to make sort of some sort of a comment. And the two images that came in those letters were, I hope I'm being precise here, um, that Elsa said she saw the church as a bullying father. Mm. And I, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people would see that. And I came back to say, no, I see the church as a, a very old woman, full of superstitions and magic and all sorts of things and all of the... I was thinking of my mother, I must say, which... But that with all of the warts and problems of undertaking such an outrageous question about trying to bring a gospel message to a to a culture today. So we did engage in, and still do, and I'm not just engaged with, with Ailsa, but engage with the wider community. I mean, this, um, this is devastating time. Mm. I'll just add one more word to what there's, a, a, just in terms of uh, being a priest. The, the church must face major surgery. No quiet massage, no quiet program of pills can be undertaken by, by our church. We, we must have major surgery. And there's even a, a voice, and I'll conclude with this comment, there's, a, there's, a, there's critics who'd say, then just stop talking. How about the church stop talking for two years or five years and just listen? I'm very attracted to that idea, but here I am at a microphone talking to you. So. <laughs> I am just a mixed up man. That's all. Um, Elsa, I don't know whether you want to respond directly to that, but I guess that in lobbying that 
image, that very provocative image that you did of the bullying father, you must have written that in one of, an, one of your most uncharacteristic moments of sort of white hot anger. I've never really experienced that with you. But I was just wondering... Come with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I was wondering whether there was anything else that you could use to illustrate or elaborate on things that you disagree about in the book where there is that kind of tension and a little bit of push and pull because I don't want you to go away and think that this book is just polite. It really goes everywhere. There is just nothing that is off the table between these two. Um, I think, you know, feminism often comes up and indeed... Mm. I, I grew up in the Catholic Church, but I also grew up... My mother, when she died, because of where I'd grown up in the outback, my mother, when she died of cancer, believed she was being sung to death. I grew up with Yamaji spirituality, which is the Gascoigne region of Western Australia. I, as a small child, could sing hymns, you know, Catholic hymns, but I could also sing, you know, that language. So I had this strange kind of mixture of spirituality and what have you. Um, but for me, the church fell away. I was head girl of a Catholic church, you know, a Catholic school, Catholic church, actually. Catholic. I should be head girl of a Catholic <laughs> church, but I'm, I was head girl of a Catholic school. Freudian um, slip, Freudian yeah. slip, you note this. In fact, someone said to Tony somewhere, um, you're very lucky to be sitting up there with a priestess. And um, <laughs> I'll take it. A yes, goddess. This is, this, a goddess. <laughs> this session is called The Priest and the Writer. Yeah. Priest and the Writer. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> um, but, you know, the thing about it is that the Catholic tradition for me, I wasn't one of those people who walked away going, well, that was rubbish. It just sort of wasn't for me. But then I began to realise through this correspondence that there was so much from it that I had actually fed my life. I'm sure I'm in the theatre because of the ritual and the storytelling. That's no surprise to me because I have no other history of it in my family. But also, you know, the, the love of sort of mythology and of mystery, I'm sure that also came to me. And Lord knows when my husband died, mm. the one person who was able to do the thing I most wanted to do turned out to be my unlikely friend. Um, and, and it was to do with an understanding of ritual and of sacredness that is above and beyond the tradition that Tony has lived his life in. I'm not... One of the major differences between us, which colours a lot of the funny exchanges but also the kind of harder exchanges, is I think that Tony has lived his life inside a tradition, inside a hierarchy, inside a very beautiful tradition at times but also a very... Um, ugly one in other times. I feel like I don't live inside any one tradition. I mean, I think in a way that's the job of the artist is probably to be the outsider, but it's taken me all of my 58 years to understand that that's my, what it might be. So I've had a whole life where I skip around doing other things. You know, I've been a writer, I've been a teacher, I've been a broadcaster, I've been an actor, I've been a... You know, and, and I've lived all over the place. The only constant in my life really was my marriage. Um, and so I think that thing of being in and outside of a tradition is a very important difference between mm. the two of us. And I've learned so much, not just about religious traditions, but about our, all the traditions that form us. I was never much interested in my family history till I began the conversation with Tony. And I have to say, I found it incredibly profound to understand about my mother and my grandmother and my great-great-grandmother. And, you know, here's a thing that Tony pointed out. My great-great-great-grandfather walked... 1,300 kilometres to claim the land that became our family's land or that we took from the Yamaji people. That's another way of looking at it. Um, 
but you know, these things that form us, I'd never considered that until I was in conversation with Tony. So there's so much mm. that, that is in the muscularity of the conversation and the continuing relationship that I think has come about, you know, because of the work we've put into it. Mm. We've worked and, and Tony is a great listener um, and he's taught me to perhaps, well, no, I think I wanted to listen. I mean, I think I want to listen to all my friends um, sometimes I'm too keen to want to talk as well, but, um, <laughs> but you know, we have listened to each other across what Tony calls a broken gate, you know, that we've got this gate between us that's broken, but we really want to hear what's on the other side of it. You, you mentioned, obviously, you know, the, the huge sort of, um, huge, huge tragedy of, of the sudden death of your husband, and I forgot to ask you when I was asking about what your friends made of your friendship with Tony, what did Peter Curtin make of your friendship <laughs> with Tony? Um, well, they're both golfers, <laughs> so they, there was a sort of an understanding of that. Um, Pete was, it, it should be said, Pete came from a much more traditional Catholic family than I did, and it caused him enormous grief. Um, Pete suffered physical, not sexual, but physical abuse um, in, in his schooling. He came from an extremely Catholic family. In fact, his cousin, a darling friend of mine who I love, is, is a bishop in Victoria. He had an aunt who was a nun. So for me, who had grown up with a kind of Catholicism I'd left behind, I came into this Irish Catholic tribe and I found it weird. But I was much more sort of peaceful about it than Peter was. So for Pete, Tony was a familiar sort of type, if you want to use that word, um, but he was not a type, you know, and Pete knew that, that religious people weren't types, but nonetheless. So I think he was um, mystified by it, but also he'd occasionally get a reading of a letter that would kind of give him pause. He was a great reader, my Pete, and uh, he was always my first reader. Uh, I don't know what he'd have made of this book. I don't know what he'd have made of being, even, of being talked about, because he was, although he was a beautiful actor, he was incredibly private. Mm. Um, and he's threaded through sinning across Spain, but that was a negotiation we had to make about how our marriage would be put into the public arena because it was incredibly precious to us. Um, so I think he, he saw that something was expanding. He saw that something gave me enormous joy and uh, excitement, you know, like it would be sometimes... And then occasionally it would be, turn that phone off so that you don't get an email. It's late at night. You can read it in the morning because the emails in the first stages were coming so fast and furious. Um, but I think... I was trying to keep up panting. <laughs> <laughs> I think... Um, I think he... Well, I think he would find it fascinating because Pete didn't find argument easy. We had an incredibly peaceful relationship in that neither of us liked to fight, but I liked to argue. He perceived, because of his upbringing, argument as fighting. Mm. And so it's a very interesting thing that, you know, I found in lots of my friends, I have people with whom you can have a good argument. That was not easy for Pete. So I think this would, I wish he could read the whole thing because I think he would understand that it's possible to do it without giving hurt or that if you give hurt, you can come back from it. Because yes. that was very difficult for him. Mm. Um, Tony, you mentioned some contradictions and some paradoxes before. We're, we're just about at the sort of half past two mark and I want to give you the opportunity for plenty of questions for these two. So I'm just going to ask you to now start thinking about the questions that you might have. But um, in terms of talking about contradictions and paradoxes, I want to ask you, I suppose, what might be the curly question. In your capacity as the Monsignor in Rose Bay, one of the many things that you did was that you converted Malcolm Turnbull to Catholicism. 
and uh, you talked before about refugees, and I just wondered how you square a politician calling themselves a Christian with locking up refugees indefinitely, and how you see your pastoral role in that capacity when you are converting someone who is the Prime Minister in terms of speaking truth to power. Yes, that's not bad, is it? Anyone like to answer that question while we're here? <laughs> well, firstly, just to correct just one, I'm a, a good friend of Malcolm Turnbull. We talk every now and again, a couple of two, two or three times a year. Does uh, Turnbull know that you're a Labour man? <laughs> you are such a mischief maker. Sorry. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> I, think, I think so, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But, uh, and... Um, a lot of people, well, a number of people who know that give me messages to give to Turnbull. <laughs> Tell him this. Are you sort of friends of his? Tell him, you know, what are they doing with it? I don't act that way. I, th I don't think you can tell anyone anything. No. That's my first fundamental... You can listen to them, you can give them space to tell their story, but I don't think you can tell anyone anything. So, I'm on my relationship, I don't want to, this just sounds grand that I'm a great friend of the, the Prime Minister. I don't want to overstate it either, but um, I don't t try to to confront him with some of my own dilemmas. So you don't about preach to him? You don't preach? Well, I mean, technically, I'd Sundays, if he comes to Mass, I do preach. But, but anyway, <laughs> uh, but, but, I, but personally, no, no, no. Uh, but how do I... I don't manage the relationship too easily, by the way, because I... Well, I, I don't want to be too uh, dramatic about um, my opinions about a, a friend of mine. But uh, I'm very, very concerned about many of the ways in which uh, this country is heading. Extraordinarily concerned. And how our present government is acting. I often give him the benefit of the doubt, by the way, as a lot of people do. They say, oh, look, it's the party and try to deal with, you know, these madmen in the party. Um, excuse me, that's a political comment, isn't it? But um, so... That's one answer to the question. The other answer to the question is probably I squib it. Okay, fair enough. Actually, That's can I say something yeah. about that though? You know, I've seen you ministering now in all manner of ways and it seems to me that the act of listening, which my sister's marriage broke down. It was a horrible, horrible broke down, breakdown. It was really ugly. There was sort of sexual infidelity involved. It was awful. And she flew to Sydney to be with me and she had an hour with Tony. And she said it was one of the most valuable hours she'd ever had. She hadn't really met him even, I don't think, before that. And I said, what did you do? And she said, well, I just told him. And I said, what, you told him everything? She said, yeah, I told him everything. And I said, oh, right. Because um, it was fairly kind of sordid, some of what had happened to her. And uh, afterwards, I was trying to sort of understand why it had been so profound. And she said, well, he just listened. Mm. And I mean, I suspect that... The, the thing of whatever the preaching is, is 
about, I mean, you have, you say, I'm sorry, I keep talking about what Tony says. I say lots of good things. But, um, <laughs> yes, there's but, a lot of Elsa no, wisdom in this but, book. Um, but, but in fact, that thing of what we all crave being attention, not like fussy attention, but that we're all carrying distress, Tony maintains, all of us, just ordinary distress, and that like children, what we need is to be heard. And it seems to me that in witnessing someone minister in a very surprising place to me, what I've seen is someone who essentially listens. And I've tried to get better at that because I think that is the great powerful act that we don't do. That's why I can't watch Q&A anymore, you know? I can't watch it. No one listens. No, and, and there is a difference between listening and what you and I talk about as active listening. And active listening has a different quality and it is, it is literally active. It is, it's like you kind of have to put your ears into gear. Which is what you've been doing for which, which is many, many doing. thanks. You know, yes. that's what writers' festivals are. It's why we love them so much, I think. Now, we have got about, well, we can push it to 10 minutes, perhaps, for questions. And we have now got a microphone in place. And I think that um, these two have furnished you with ample opportunity and material for questions. So if you would like to ask a question, I will ask you to go to the central microphone. If there are no questions, I will keep going. But I really think that you should take the opportunity <laughs> and ask these two some questions. So questions, anybody? Come on. <laughs> yes, good. And could we please, please, please confine it to questions? We've had a lot of statements in other sessions and... No statements. Question. Tony, is Elsa like similar to a daughter that you might have liked to have had? Oh. And Elsa, is Tony the father you might have liked to have had? Beautiful question. That's a good question, isn't it? It's a, um I often think of Ailsa's time that she has donated to me as some sort of a relationship between a daughter and a father. In fact, our ages accommodate that very well. Um, I have never thought the opposite, interestingly. You know, the question that you asked me that is Ailsa my daughter that I never had? Um, I'll have to think about that, but, it's, but, it, but it's, it's a new question for me. Is that the essence of what this most unlikely friendship is about? I don't know. I don't know. It seems to me more equal than that. I have to say, from the outside as an observer, I, I see the age dynamic as being sort of irrelevant in this correspondence in a way that does make them equals. But you might like to comment on that also, Elsa. Um, funnily enough, at the book launch last week, or 10 days ago, whenever it was, my father, who's 86, flew across the country from Western Australia. He's not entirely well, so it was a bit of a scary thing for us. But he came. When I say he's not entirely well, he also smokes and drinks like a chimney, you know. I mean, he's, no, he smokes like a chimney and he drinks like, you know, you get the gist. And he loves a party. Um, we became great friends. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a fan, sort of fantastic thing on the first night. Um, my father, the first thing he wanted to do was meet Tony. He's met, you know, so many of my other friends, but he wanted to meet Tony. And I think it was the thing of to see what a free conversation was with someone of his generation. Because, of course, as a child and a parent, you don't... Well, my, I mean, I had, I had great parents, and I probably... I still have my dad, I still have my stepfather, 
but I don't have the two women. And my mum died very young and she was my best mate. My father's relationship was a father-daughter relationship, really always has been. And there are certain constraints on that. That And my father's quite a, was quite a sort of um, proper father. So I would never have talked to him about certain things I was doing when I was younger and being naughty. Um, and then when Pete died, I couldn't talk to Dad because he understood what it was to lose someone suddenly with his wife. And my father didn't know what to do to comfort me, whereas Tony had all the tools. He's dealt with grief a lot. He's dealt with dying a lot. So there's a difference. But I understand what you're saying because... But I have a lot of... Um, I've always had a lot of friends, friendships that were with people much older, um, but mostly women, certainly not a priest. <laughs> um, and I think there is something so profoundly important about listening to the other generation. I mean, I have friends also in their 20s who are my close friends. And I never like to think of myself as the elder, even though I like to listen to an elder. You know, it's funny, isn't it? Mm. Another question. Mm. While one of you, while some of you are thinking of questions, then I'll ask you something about the state of play now. Because, of course, not only have you converted these letters into a performance in this book, and shared this with the public and are going to keep doing this on many stages, I hope. But you, Elsa, after your husband died, decided that it was too hard to stay living in Melbourne, uprooted yourself and came to Sydney and started a new <laughs> life in Sydney. And that means that, ironically, you two have ended up as virtual neighbours mm -hmm. living on the same street. You can kind of wave to each other from yeah. your, your apartments. How do you think that that proximity has um, changed or affected your friendship? I mean, obviously, letters are no longer necessary. Well, they are, because, in fact, you know... The, for me, one of the things I miss, I mean, we had, it was interesting because I moved to Watson's Bay by chance. I was looking to go back to Elizabeth Bay where I had been living when I met Pete. And this real estate agent who helped me for three months, like an angel, like a complete angel, and he went through every up and down with me, one day rang and said, I've found your flat, it's in Watson's Bay. And I thought, Watson's Bay, I don't know. Anyway, I drove out there and it was, it was exactly what I'd been describing. It was this little tree house. And it let me start afresh. Um, and then by mischance, when Tony retired, the diocese said, there's a place here. And it is. It's literally a couple of hundred yards away. And it was very strange because we, we were editing the book and so we could walk across the road. Um, and I started to miss... I still miss the letters. And every so often there'll be a plaintive cry saying, could we just do some letters? Because... <laughs> Because the letters are about a particular kind of ability to form thoughts. Mm. You know, in the, we go on sidetracks when we have conversations and we get away from what's important. And there's something about the forming of thought in letters that I occasionally just get hungry for and I kind of want to say, can we have moratorium and just have letters? I don't know, Tony? I'd like to approach it from a slightly different uh, angle. Uh, there may be quite a number of people saying, oh, is this relationship prudent? Is it... <laughs> is it kosher? Is, is, it, is, it, is it kosher? Is it, uh, uh, is it scandalous? Is it uh, highly inappropriate? By the way, I'm sure... I'm sure those questions are in the minds of lots of people, even who haven't read the book, by the way. <laughs> Just the very fact that we're together uh, in this enterprise... And that does worry me. 
And in fact, when we found ourselves living close to one another, I thought, oh my goodness me, you know. <laughs> what will the neighbours think? <laughs> <laughs> what will my colleagues think, my priest colleagues? And, but to explain who I am, if I may, in a bit of self-analysis, one of my beliefs about the culture we're living in is that we are gripped in fear. That fear is a toxic, corrosive part of who we are. We have huge security, interest, uh, security industries. We are concerned about terrorism. We're concerned about going flying somewhere. You know, there's a million the reasons that the, the journalists keep playing our fear, playing out our fears. I find myself reacting against that fairly disproportionately, perhaps. I he like will not lock his car. No. He will not lock his car. Or his house. <laughs> no, that is right. But, 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 <laughs> and it is a sort of... Uh, this sounds neurotic, doesn't it? But anyway, but I don't care what it sounds like. This is who I am. I think undertaking risks is actually a sign of maturity, is, un, is, a, is a reaction to this cosseted, secure, fear-ridden, re reductive life that we are living. I think actually being a priest is a hell of a risk, and it's even stronger risk now. Mm. I think being celibate is a risk. I think forming relationships and by the way, this is a perfectly, uh, I, I, this is a, a relationship of friendship, I promise you. Uh, but how it looks is far less important than what it is. Mm. And there's all sorts of things that I do that I'm sort of, I, I to go back to my family story and I'll, I'll Conclude the, conclude the moment. Um, my great-grandparents took an enormous risk to get on a boat to come to Australia. My parents took an enormous risk without money having three children. Um, I come from a Celtic sort of funny, ironic approach to life, which is it risk-taking? Well, sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But... Um, I hope that doesn't muddy the waters even further, but uh, I don't think I would like to make a decision based simply upon fear or the lack of risk or the, the fact of risking. Does that make sense? It does. It's a very roundabout answer, but it's, it's, it's <laughs> with an interesting per peregrination. Can just, just to finish, one of the shared joys, one of the many things that you two share apart from a wonderful love of poetry which is really uh, beautifully expressed and captured in these pages is um, that you also share a great love of etymology and of dissecting the origins of words and I think one of the favorite ones that I learned thanks to you is the origin Tony of the word spirit and I was just thinking that that was a beautiful place to end if you could remind us of the origin of the word spirit Yes, there's a, a Jewish word which means 
which is Ruach. I hope that's the right pronunciation. And Ruach is a Jewish word for spirit. It also is the Jewish word for breath. So when we breathe, uh, there's something related to who we are at our very essence, our spirit. Uh, and therefore, breathing, walking, mm. swimming, swimming, swimming. <laughs> um, praying, that might sound ir irrelevant, but when I walked the Camino, somebody asked me at the end of the, the Camino, uh, had I prayed much? And I did at the beginning of the, uh, the, the day, but the rest of the journey was foot, foot after foot and sort of, and uh, this woman, young woman asked me, had I prayed much? And, and I said, well, not much, perhaps for a half an hour in the morning, but the rest of the day was spent in the physical work of walking. She said, you prayed with your feet. <laughs> so that, I hope you make, we can make the connections here because spirit is very much part of our, of our human makeup. It's not something out there. Mm. It is actually the essence of who we are. And we express that essence in a body. Mm. And the best Catholic theology, I think, is a theology which says your human experience is the beginning of all, is the beginning and end of all religious experiences. That sounds a big generalisation, doesn't it? But it's not about something out there. It's about who we are and how we behave. Well, um, on that note, then, having talked about praying with our feet, I think it's appropriate that now we perhaps pray with our hands. <laughs> so will you join me in thanking Tony Doherty and Earl Thank Piper? Thank you. Thanks, Caro. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation from the 2017 Newcastle Writers' Festival. We hope you can join us this year from Friday, April the 6th to the 8th. We have 130 of Australia's best writers coming to town ready to share their ideas and insights. For more information, please visit newcastlewritersfestival.org.au.